Deep listening. الاستماع العميق. Deep listening. Intensive to hear. Deep listening. Deep listening. Deep listening. Impact beyond words. Low context cultures are where yes means yes, no means no. You know, I say what I mean and I mean what I say. I get to the point, I'm direct. So that's kind of, if you think about the extremes in terms of low context. High context is where yes means yes, yes may mean yes, yes may also mean no, and yes may mean maybe, depending on how it's said. So it's contextual. So it's not just what's said, but it's the tonality of the voice, the pitch, facial expressions, body language, uh, etc. Deep listening. Akshava amuka. L'écoute profonde. Deep listening. In this episode of Deep Listening, Impact Beyond Words, we have the opportunity to move across the world with Tom, a cross-cultural consultant who spends every day at the intersection of different cultures. The most important lesson I took from this interview was the importance of knowing your own culture before you could understand somebody else's. Tom talks about the importance of listening for meaning for listening for what's unsaid, for the use of silence in high-context cultures and what that means. I love the story about the Korean banking example. Listen out as we travel all the way to Korea to understand if somebody from the West can close a deal without really understanding the importance of silence. Explore with Tom as he talks about the difference between British Standard Time an Indian stretch time and what that means when you're setting up a meeting so that people can listen carefully to what's being discussed rather than spending all your time paying attention to the clock. And then finally, listen out and watch as the curry and yogurt drips down his wife's wrist all the way to her sleeve as she turns to Tom to ask for advice on how this works across cultures. Let's listen to Tom. Deep listening. Deep listening. Tiefes Zuhören. Deep listening. So as someone who's committed themselves to creating greater understanding across cultures, yeah. what advice would you give to listeners when they're consciously aware that somebody's come from a very hierarchical Asian education system and what that means in a Western context? I think it's important for us to realize that when you've grown up in a hierarchical culture, it is actually difficult to challenge, to speak up, to have an opinion, unless you are asked. Like, so you need to be asked. You need to be invited in. So let me give you an example of that. Two months ago, I was uh, in uh, speaking at the Australian Asian Leadership Conference in Sydney and uh, saying to the audience that had we run the conference, this conference 10 years ago, nobody would have attended. (laughs) Five years ago, probably nobody would have attended. Last year, I think there were 15 people and this year there were 70. And majority, 95% were Asians. Um, you know, 5% are Anglos, and the age group ranged from 18 to probably uh, mid to late 30s was the demographic. And um, I, I kind of mentioned to the group out of, you know, 
out of jest, really. I said, I bet you there are more MBAs in this group than you could poke a stick at. So let's have a show of hands, right? And so next thing you know, like all these MBAs in the group. And I said, I bet you what's happening is, you know, so here we are, group of people, highly educated. Most of them would be second generation Asians, so which means their parents came here, worked really hard, two jobs, educated them. They've gone into the corporate world, worked really hard, studied hard, doing what's required, have moved up the organization and suddenly are now facing that sense of how do I move forward here? You know, normally known as the glass ceiling for women, or we call it the bamboo ceiling within the Asian context, sometimes now referred to as the cultural glass ceiling, whichever way it is. But it's that how do I actually move into that senior level and what is it? And the reality being that, you know, it's not the education. It's not the things that of how hard you work. It's all the things that's the unsaid, okay, which is really around organizational culture. For instance, the things that will be going through the senior leaders in terms of can I put you in front of the analysts and will they trust you? Can I take you out for a formal meal and will you know which knives and forks to use? You know, those things are the things that's actually very tacit, right? Uh, Unspoken. How do we learn those things? And the importance really then of when it's how do we learn that? So for people who are from a different culture, the importance of actually looking for sponsorship, guidance, coaching, so that we can learn the rules of the game. But vice versa, how do we, on the other hand, as Western leaders, also look at developing those talent, developing those skills, unleashing that so that we get the max, you know, the maximum out of them as well? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's as simple as how you shake hands. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think the shaking hands thing is actually a a key thing. I mean, let me give you an example of that. When I first came uh, to, as I said, to Australia in that first summer, my my job, I picked up a job that summer and was selling encyclopedias door to door, right? So this just shows you how far back it goes. (laughs) As my son would say, you know, why would anybody buy books? You know, but I said there was a time you know, in a different era. And I remember in my first month of selling encyclopedias, I, I sold absolutely nothing. I went to my sales manager at that time, Mr. Ian McLaren, and I said, Mr. McLaren, please help me. I'm trying hard. I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do. Nothing seems to be working. And Mr. McLaren turned around and said, Tom, I'm going to teach you a couple of things. Here's what I want you to do. Put your hand out. And he shook my hand. He said, give me a good, firm handshake and look at me in the eye. And I, Which I did. And one of the things I realized was, coming from Malaysia, when we shake hands, we shake hands in a very gentle manner. 
But in Australia, you know, it's important to have a firm handshake and it's gender neutral because a firm handshake depicts a number of things. You're trustworthy, you're sincere, you can be counted on, you're reliable, you're not a wet fish. All comes from a handshake. And if you think about all the work that we do on bias, unconscious bias, nonverbal communications, I'm getting all my indicators from that handshake. Okay. Whereas in Malaysia, a gentle handshake demonstrates respect, sincerity, commitment. And so there was a clash, right? So obviously I'm having the intention of having a soft handshake here, but giving the wrong uh, impressions. So I had to really shift and shift my handshake. And also about eye contact becoming much more important. Again, in the Asian context around you'd look at, you'd maintain eye contact, but you'd avert the gaze as also a matter of being respectful. Whereas here, eye contact is much more important. Those were all nonverbal communication. And, you know, I think uh, I will always be indebted to Mr. McLaren. I mean, he was really a cross-cultural coach without even knowing that he was a cross-cultural coach. Deep listening. Deep listening. Deep listening. The question I'm wanting to ask is the question about the role of silence across the two cultures. I think in... so. If we think about, from from a literature point of view, if you look at the theory, you know one of the one of the differences that we talk about in the literature around culture is high context, low context communication styles, based very much on the work of uh, Edward Hall, and um, so. Low context cultures are where yes means yes, no means no. You know, I say what I mean and I mean what I say. I get to the point, I'm direct. So that's kind of, if you think about the extremes in terms of low context. High context is where yes means yes, yes may mean yes, yes may also mean no, and yes may mean maybe, depending on how it's said. So it's Textual. So it's not just what's said, but it's the tonality of the voice, the pitch, facial expressions, body language, uh, etc. So I think in a lot of high context cultures, sometimes the message is not in what's being said, but what's not being said. The role of silence comes in because there are a lot more gaps in terms of when do I actually respond and what am I listening for? In Western construct, in Western cultures, person A, person B, you and I are speaking, you know, you speak, pause, I speak. Then I pause, you speak. So there is a cue, right? What we call the social cues on how we kind of come in, when do we speak? There are other cultures, for instance, where we overlap, you know, we'll speak on top of each other and that's okay because we're listening in the process. And then there are, again, other types of cultures where one person speaks, that's a gap of about three to five seconds before the next person speaks, three to five seconds, next person speaks. So the gap of silence is to demonstrate a, a level of respect. I've heard you, I'm processing what you've said. And now let me respond. 
which is in fact very challenging actually for Western uh, leaders, I find. And one of the things I have to work with senior Western execs is actually to, to, to shut up, to keep quiet. I'll give you a classic example of uh, a client of mine who worked in uh, the banking industry, who was in, uh, went to Korea uh, on a meeting. And really, the Koreans are much, very high context cultures, very relationship based. And in, in the process, as he did on reflection, and although we practiced it before he went, we talked about it quite a bit. It's some, It's one thing to kind of talk about it. It's another thing to do it when you're in the moment. And I think he was conscious of the fact afterwards on reflection where he just over, he just overspoke it, right? He just overtalked. He would ask a question. There'd be a pause. And what was going through his head was, oh, maybe they didn't understand the question. So let me say it another way. Okay, or let me say it louder. Let me rephrase that rather than just allowing, rather than just to sit in it. So I think that that was a you know that that's that's an example of where it occurred. And I think also the other thing in terms of also high context, low context is at the end of the presentation when he had done done the presentation, they said they their response was oh you know it's it's uh, it's very interesting you know we will give it very you know we will give it very careful consideration, which for him was an indicator that you know it had gone well. The reality of it is it was actually a no. You know, they were actually turning it down. So again, how do we listen for meaning in what's being said? You know, how do we actually, instead of just looking at the literal translation, how do I actually understand what is actually the intentionality of the word, of the of uh, what's being said? Well, I also have learned from that uh, example, from that example, because I learned from him. So I have shifted in the way I coach. And so I've improved in myself, uh, and one of the things now I, that I teach uh, uh, we, we, a lot of my clients is, especially in those contexts when they're working in those cultures, is to ask a question and then do a physical movement. In most instances, I teach people to pinch uh, just the you know the, the the part between the thumb and the and their index in their finger, just to pinch themselves as a way of reminding themselves to keep quiet, to shut up. Like, so ask the question, hold on, breathe, pause, and to be comfortable in the silence. And in that state, your clients elicited that it's a really interesting presentation and we'll give it consideration, which is a very elegant and very respectful no. Yeah. Uh, yet they walked away from the presentation thinking they had a chance. Is there any other question they could have asked in that moment to get a better insight themselves? Absolutely. So it's always to ask the follow-up questions. So the questions in that instance would have been, thank you very much for that. Can I ask you, what was it that was interesting about it? So in other words, digging down into it. 
you know, when someone says, you know, yes, you know, we will think about that more. Or like, oh, yes, we can do that. Okay, terrific. What's going to be the first step in terms of moving that into action? So actually, you know, delving, delving down into it, specifically with high context cultures, because bearing in mind that in a lot of high context cultures, it's also about maintaining face, you know, showing respect. So they don't want to turn down. And a lot of cultures find it very difficult to use the word no. So they don't use the word no. They may they may say no, but they don't use the word no. So it's the manner in the way they say no, or it could be the sucking in with a deep breath. That will be difficult. All these are indicators, which if we are not used to that, we don't pick up those signals. So it completely goes over our head. Deep listening. Écoute attentive. Penne ascoltare. Ukulalela fieleja. Would you be able to share some frameworks for the listener? Some some simple ways for them to think through this, because uh, a lot of people think cultural context is traveling overseas, and yet, particularly in Australia or most Western uh, economies, cross cultures happen every day. It could happen in a in a contact center, could happen in a supermarket, it could happen in your own office. What's a what's a framework or frameworks you would recommend? that people explore. Once again, I'm going back into, you know, if we talk about uh, the field as such. So, you know, in the early days, we always used to talk about cross-cultural effectiveness. That's what it was, right? So, so you know, I'm going to China, and how do I deal to learn with the Chinese? Or I'm going to Mexico, how do I deal about that? But these days, you know, especially in the last, say, 12 years or so, we use the term cultural intelligence, And cultural intelligence is the ability to deal with people from different cultural backgrounds, right? So it's in dealing with diverse settings. Because in today's world, you may speak to somebody who may look, for instance, Chinese, but they grew up in the United States, they studied in Spain, they've worked in Brazil, and they're married to somebody from Norway. Okay? So it's that whole issue around... How do I build a skill set that allows me enough flex? How do I then understand and appreciate my preference in terms of my style of speaking, my style of uh, listening, and how do I allow for time to do that? And that ability to actually pause, which is in fact what you talk about, right? So it's about deep listening. How do I listen for the message that's behind the words? And if you think about the world's gone from being cross-cultural to global, and I'm a leader who's working with a cross-cultural team, I want to bring you back to the handshake. Yep. The Western handshake was firm, the Malaysian handshake was not which is appropriate and how should you lead is the question that everybody prompts so an example of that might be how do i start a meeting that is conscious of all contexts and cultures in the room rather than just making an assumption about what's present sure thing well i think it's about 
having agreements right up front. So let's go back to the concept of the handshake. It's being able to understand in within myself what meaning am I giving to the handshake. So if I come from a belief system and have a bias that says, for instance, I can tell a lot about an individual from their handshake, which, by the way, many people believe. If I have that as a belief system, then that is going to be a strong indicator for me. However, if I'm being more culturally intelligent, what I'll turn around and be able to say to myself is, okay, you know, people shake hands differently in in cultures. In some cultures, they don't even shake hands, right? And so perhaps don't attribute meaning to that, okay? I'm not saying don't pay attention to it, but don't layer as much meaning onto that. And how do I just take that back? Your second, your question then also about if I'm working in a team that has people from multiple cultures, how do I set that up? I think it's about having ground rules. So I was uh, earlier uh, in the year in uh, in Mumbai uh, working uh, on, with a multinational. Uh, we had uh, people from a number of different countries. And, you know, India as has uh, one of the things we have in India is called the Indian Stretch Time, IST, okay? <laughs> you know, which means that, you know, in you know in India, generally speaking, we, Indians tend to be polychronic, which is that they have a very loose and flexible attitude to time. Not saying that they're not on time, but just have a general attitude is loose to time, right? So meetings tend to maybe kind of later, et cetera. So one of the things we established right up front when we were setting up ground rules for our time together was agreeing on, well, let's agree on time and what times do we want to work on? You know, do we look at uh, British standard time? Do we work on British standard time or do we work on Indian standard time? Let's have an agreement so that that you know, then we'll understand, like, what are we operating on? Because otherwise, people get annoyed. And when I get annoyed, what then I start, I'll start looking for fault. You know, and then I start layering things on, and that then impacts the relationship. So, don't give a meaning, but pay attention to a uh, lovely summary there. I'm intrigued about what we haven't covered so far that you think would help the listener. Whether it's the key thing that people take from reading your book or the key insight you've had from your wife and the hand she eats with. Uh, What do you think would serve the listener most? I think we spend very little time reflecting on our own culture. So most people are not able to articulate their own cultural values. We live in a globalized world. The, one of the biggest requests I get is, uh, tell us about the other. It's always about the other. And my response is, it's not about the other. It's about you. Let's hold up the mirror because the other is always relative to you. It's always relative, right? It's not objective. Culture is subjective. 
So in one cultural context, you may come across as being direct. In another cultural context, you may come across as being indirect. It's who and what are you comparing that with? So to be a culturally intelligent leader, it's really critical for you to understand what are your own cultural values. What are the signals that you look at in terms of professionalism, good teamwork, good cohesion, trustworthiness, reliability? So if you can understand that, then you know within yourself those are the standards you're using to assess, to gauge, and also be appreciative that I'm actually using my lens. Okay, I'm using my lens in a different context. Yes, it may be correct, but I also may be incorrect. So who do I check that with? You know, how do I get a reality check? So if I'm then conscious about my, you know, know yourself, right? Know thyself, which just goes back to the you know, philosophy of way old, old ancient times. Know thyself so that in that way you can be more effective in dealing with others. What advice would you give professionals who have to work with language interpreters? Speak less. Speak less. I think for those people who have good command of English, they uh, tend to overuse the language, especially when you have people who are interpreting. It does take a lot of time. You know, there's the old story about the successful business person who went on a trip to Japan. And he had an interpreter uh, with him on his first uh, day. So, you know, obviously did his presentation. And he was uh, from uh, the West. Let's not talk about any particular country. But part of the presentation style was about starting the presentation with humor. So he had a number of jokes right up front. And his first presentation in Japan, people laughed at his jokes. He was really happy with how the presentation went. On his second day, he was doing the same presentation to another group, but this time he had a he had a different interpreter. He told the same jokes, but no one laughed. So he thought to himself, gosh, this interpreter is not funny. On day three, same presentation, he had the interpreter from day one, told the same jokes, and everybody laughed. He said, okay, I'm back. He was excited. But in the back of his mind, he thought, thought to himself, I better check some assumptions that I've made. So at the end of the presentation, he asked the interpreter, look, day one, told the jokes, everyone laughed. Day three, told the jokes, everyone laughed because you were the common denominator. But day two, no one laughed at the jokes. So tell me, how did you tell the jokes that people were able to laugh? And she said, well, sir, I just told the audience the gentleman has just made a joke. Please laugh. <laughs> and that is a true story. <laughs> so jokes are very difficult to translate over, uh, you know, over different cultures. It's so culturally bound. So speak less. Deep listening. Akshava amuka. L'écoute profonde. 
deep listening. It's really important for us, for us to realize that culture is tacit. So in other, in other words, you know your culture. It's in your gut. Like, you know it. You know, I may not be able to articulate these are the things that's important in my culture, but I know it. And my wife is English. So many years ago when, um, you know, before we got married, I took my wife back uh, to visit my parents in Malaysia. And my wife, in an attempt to demonstrate cultural sensitivity, said to me, Tom, in your house, I'm going to eat food with my fingers. Because I'm Indian, growing up in an Indian uh, household, we eat food with our fingers. And I said, yeah, great. That's a good idea. Do that. So, you know, our first meal, my parents are there, my brothers, my sister, you know, where, you know, eating our meal in the first five minutes, my wife turns around to me, nudges me in the ribs and says, how do you stop the curry and yogurt from running down your hands? And I said, I don't know, but it wasn't happening to me. And it wasn't happening to anyone else at the table. It was only happening to her. Uh, you know, and it, it really, it, it drove home the point that I'd learned how to eat food with my fingers from a very early age. Right? And that's a whole art and science of how to eat food with your fingers. Right? It's an etiquette, you know, how do you mix the food? How do you get the consistency, etc.? I mean, because I've read up on it now, so I know how to talk about it. <laughs> So we learn those things within our culture, and that's just to do with food. But think about how we deal with hierarchy. How do you, how do we do we how we deal with members of the opposite gender? How do we deal with conflict? How we deal with teamwork? What is seen to be professional, unprofessional? What's clean? What's dirty? What's rational? What's irrational? What's logical, illogical? All those things are very much culturally bound. And within an individual, you will have different parameters on those things based on your cultural upbringing. Now, you may not agree with all those rules. Okay, You may not agree with them. And you may not like them, but you know the rules. Compared to when you're working across cultures, the person who breaks the rules is the individual who doesn't know the culture. And that's what creates the angst. That's what suddenly highlights, well, that's a cultural norm. And that individual has, you know, what has, what has that individual done? So let's talk to how conflict plays across differently. I had a great map of the world drawn for me the other day. If we drew a circle from Pakistan through China, Japan, yep. and all the way down to Indonesia, more people live inside that circle than live outside that circle. How do you think they treat conflict differently? Well, I think the if you think about if you think about conflict, it's really having different points of agreement, isn't it? Different points of view, right? So how do I actually deal with someone who has a different point of view? Now, in of course in certain cultures and if you're coming from a more collectivist culture, higher group orientation, more people, higher density living. It's not easy to just disagree abruptly. So you may disagree gently. You may disagree in ways that actually maintains relationships in the same 
context because the relationships are important as compared to working in, you know, coming from maybe individualistic cultures where it's about having a point of view. If I disagree with you, it's actually pointing out the fact that I disagree with you. And here's my point of view. And what's your point of view? And being able to enter into robust debate, robust discussion versus for those cultures for whom uh, one of the great values is actually maintaining harmony. What would be the one tip you would give to the audience to improve their listening across cultures? One tip would be to be interested. Be interested in the other. Be interested rather than be rather than being interesting. Be interested because everyone has a story, Oscar. Right, everyone has a story. How do I listen to the story? I think that's a really simple place to finish. Thank you very much, Tom. Most welcome, Oscar. Thank you. Deep listening. Deep listening. Deep listening. I could have spoken to Tom for another hour. The examples he came up consistently, you could see there was decades and decades of experience in the work that Tom had done. I love the way he talked about high-context cultures, which were Korean, Japanese and Chinese cultures, and the way he contrasted them to low-context cultures. Also, the way he talked about collectivist versus individual approaches in language and how you need to listen for that, particularly when you're dealing with conflict in situations that may be teamwork or across organisations. My favourite phrase was when he talked about shaking hands and the strength or lack of in a handshake is important. What he said was, don't lay a meaning onto it, but it is important to pay attention to it. Tom spent a lot of time talking about the role of meaning and understanding the meaning that's applied while you're listening and what are the various filters that you're using in your listening It's really important to step back and understand your own culture first. It's only when understanding your own culture that you can listen for the differences in others. How deeply do you understand your own culture in the way meaning is attributed to a handshake? What level are you listening on across cultures? In an intensely global world today, it's critical that you have a lens to understand culture. How loudly are you speaking? How quickly are you speaking? And how does that help or hinder the other person from listening? The one tip I took away from Tom that I will integrate into what I do is when I asked Tom the question, what do you do to listen to alternative positions? And Tom actively, consistently, and deliberately integrates those questions into anything he does to invite other perspectives into that dialogue. So in that way, he not only increases the perspective on his own understanding, but he allows others to be heard when expressing their perspective. So how actively are you inviting diverse perspectives into a dialogue 
So not only that you can listen to them, but they can feel heard. Thanks for listening. Deep listening. Deep listening. Lourdes LaSalle. Deep listening. Deep listening. Whakarongo. Deep listening. Impact beyond words.